I am ready. Okay, well, I guess I'm recording now. Fantastic. Uh, so here we are, once again, on the field of literary strife, talking about the wonderful, the joyous, the heart-wrenching, the absurd. Catch-22. Uh, I don't even the know... The novel what... that you were assigned to read in sixth grade. Uh, more or less, and that we were all assigned to read like two months ago, in which in my rampant idiocy and uh over committing i have decided to put off until two months or so to do the podcast <laughs> and actually get through it so that's fine whatever we're, we're done i've read the book paul's read the book we're ready to go most I've, of the book most of the book okay well most I've, of the book i've got, I, I I've got with me delinquent let me paul see chapman uh i got to page 259 that's pretty deep Okay, I yeah, mean, that's that's pretty good. There's still, there's still a good chunk of novel left, and what I is it like? Three fifty, three sixty, uh, three uh, four sixteen by this four sixteen. Um, Holy shit! Yeah, it was a long book, so you can understand why I, I didn't finish it all the way. I mean, I, I'm enjoying reading it, but I just I don't know. It's like I had like a traumatic head injury at some point, and my attention span just disappeared, and nothing holds my attention for any great length of time anymore. But I didn't have a traumatic head injury. I just, I don't know. I, I try and read something or watch something, and eventually I feel like I'd be better spending my time doing something else. Well, Although I don't necessarily know what that other thing might be. One could say that any time spent on the Internet is equivalent to a traumatic head injury. So <laughs> That's true. Really, there's no telling. Mm. Uh, but So, yeah, Paul Chapman from the uh, Greatest Movie Ever podcast on to talk about Catch-22 this month. Uh, Joseph Heller's novel from the mid-20th century about warfare and bureaucracy and everything that makes us human and American and good, red-blooded citizens of this country. So Now, leaving, leaving aside uh, James Joyce, who I'm convinced nobody actually really reads... Um, would you say that Catch-22 might be the quintessential American postmodernist novel? I mean, Joyce was an Irishman, so... Uh, ah, good point. You know, as... Yeah, as American novels go, this is really up there in terms of people's recommendations or its inclusion on important lists. Now, had uh, you did you have to read this one for school? Because I actually missed that. In my curriculum, we did not have to do... Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, but I know in Florida, at least, it's quite commonly used as a high school reading material, and honestly, um, that's not fair. That's really not fair, because um, it's a long book, for one thing, and, you know, look how much time I had to it, and I only got to two, page 259, and I'm a slow reader, but I feel like teenagers are going through enough difficulty and trauma with their adolescent years as it is in terms of, of being confused. You'll, you'll feel emotions and not understand, you know, why you're so angry all of a sudden. You'll just be mad for no reason. And, uh, you know, confused and, and desperate. And um, there's a lot of confusion and desperation in this novel. And I don't know if it's, in, it's fair to inflict that on an adolescent audience when they're already confused and, and desperate enough already. And then make them write a paper about it. <laughs> yeah, I guess there is that. Um, I, like you, missed this in my high school curriculum. Uh, I had the, the benefit of 
getting the hell out of my high school about two years in and doing the college route instead. Uh, so whatever they did the last two years of literature instruction, I basically missed. Um, and I'm See, you're, glad you're actually lucky because in the state of Florida, they mandate that you have to have four years of high school level English education to the point where you can't graduate. You can't skip grades of English like you can skip grades of math and some other subjects. As a matter of fact, that resulted in me in the first semester of my senior year of high school having to take two English classes simultaneously, one of which was 12th grade English and one of which was half of 9th grade English, which I missed as a result of transferring from one school to another that had completely different semester layouts. And rather than just saying, well, you're a straight-A student in English, and uh, you've done fine in English so far, um, we'll just exempt you from having to take half a semester as the only senior in a ninth-grade English class. No, no, we're going to make you take that. You're going to be required to take that for graduation. Well, but that leads to uh, an opportunity for intellectually lording it over these kids. It's like being the biggest dick in the room. Oh, so that's kind of nice. No, it was, it was like, you know how in Japan, like how they have those documentaries, how bullying is reversed, mm-hmm. and it's actually, instead of the dumb kids picking on the smart kids, it's the smart kids picking on the dumb kids. All of the ninth graders thought that I was some kind of idiot for being in that class alongside them, not realizing the strangeness of my circumstances. So they were a pack of assholes the entire time, and I was quite happy to transfer away from that school into a different school where... I had to do more English classes in a different format. So in, uh, in conclusion, in high school English, I had about five and a half years worth of English as a result of stupidity and poorly laid out academic programs in a four-year four, four time span. Now we know why you're stuck writing things. You've had all this English indoctrination. You just can't <laughs> get out. You're like, well, fuck it. I'm married to it now. I'm and you know what was even going. worse? You know what was even worse? And I didn't realize this until later. This is a little bit off topic. But uh, my English teacher, whom I had at the time for both 12th and 9th grade English at that time, she was a disciple of a certain person who wrote a certain book called The Fountainhead. That's kind of fun. <laughs> did, did that come through in your lessons really strongly? I didn't pick up on it until like way later when I knew who Ayn Rand was but she was like encouraging kids to read the Fountainhead and then like enter the Ayn Rand Society of America essay writing competition talking about how great that book was for scholarship money so I didn't put two and two together until I was long since gone but looking back it's it's pretty amusing I just get a vision of you among a bunch of high school students in white robes like you're the polyphonic spree except you're singing about the free market capitalism. Well, and... don't you see the irony in a public servant working for the public school system being a disciple of Ayn Rand? No, man, you're taking down the man <laughs> from inside. You got a man inside the machine. You got that mole in there. You're taking it all down. Mm. Yeah, kind it's, of like it's, uh, it's subterfuge. George, kind of like Washington Irving in Catch-22. Uh, yes, Washington Irving inside the machine from every possible point. Um, I think maybe we're dancing around even talking about this because I don't know if you know how to talk about it, but I goddamn well don't. Well, the biggest difficulty is the fact that it's not a novel in traditional chronological order. Every chapter skips 
around in, in space and time such that events that have already occurred are referenced um, as if they have already occurred and then you don't find out what the events are until later when they happen in real time. Um, okay, well, let's... That it's let's, it's let's not the it easiest thing to speak about in a chronological sense. For, for people who didn't read this or haven't read it, whatever, the basic idea of this book is that it is an absurd, farcical take on military action in the context of World War II in the Italian front of the war. Uh, and so it's these folks on an island, some mythical air squadron. And it's their various commanders and bombardiers and pilots doing whatever it is that they do in the midst of World War II. So the mm-hmm. general idea is that this is a military novel but it's like the send-up of the military, so it's got this farcical, kind of absurd element to it. But there's question in my mind as to whether or not there's deeper commentary, or if a lot of it really is just surface-level, back-and-forth, goofy, kind of fun, illogic, uh, where he was just essentially having fun with words and ideas, and there wasn't a great deal more commentary to it that, that I think maybe the uh, the literary critics are lumping on more than there actually is i do think it has some pretty deep themes i mean it's darkly satirical and it's absurdist and downright contradictory in places it's just that i think the thematic thrust of the novel could be gathered from any individual chapter and then it just sort of repeats throughout the entire book um one of the sort of central tenets of Catch of Catch Twenty Two is this this fundamental absurdity in in what a Catch Twenty Two is itself. It's like a a self contradictory proposition. The example that they give in the book is you have to be insane to be grounded from flying any more air missions over enemy territory, but if you realize the danger of flying more missions over enemy territory and you value your life, that means you're thinking rationally and thus you're not insane and thus you can't be grounded and have to fly more missions over enemy territory. Catch-22. Um, it, it is difficult to talk about, though, but that's, that's sort of the central idea of the, um, of the book. And it, it isn't just in the context of military action. Certainly there are military characters. Pretty much every character uh, in the in the book is attached to the military in some sense, whether they be a commanding officer or an enlisted man or um, the chaplain, the doctors that are attached to you know. I, I guess the, actually the only other characters that aren't military characters that are actually formed, as opposed to just spoken about, like the village, for instance, the innocent Italian village that's bombed. Uh, you really meet, I guess, only pimps and whores. Yeah. Well, there's the the cranky old guy who claims to be 107 years old. Right, I guess I reg- he could qualify I regard as, as a, a pimp. pimp. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of like the, the elder statesman of the whorehouse. Um, <laughs> who, his character was fantastic. Uh, those exchanges were really, really good, as was the, the one exchange with Yosari and our main character. And uh, Scheisskopf's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they when were they're arguing about arguing who's about the bigger God. atheist, yeah, yeah, well, the they're, God they're that I don't like believe a... in is a loving God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I like that exchange a whole lot. I like the fact that she was getting upset that 
he was uh, condemning condemning a different god that she didn't believe in. <laughs> yeah. That that was But I that's think... sort of like the fundamental absurdity of it is like, you know, two people arguing who over who's the better atheist or uh not being able to ground yourself because you're you're too sane to <laughs> to continue flying the missions. Um there there's sort of like this this hysterical frantic desperate energy that that runs throughout the uh book. And I especially love how everybody behaves fundamentally irrationally. You know, they they um they do things almost to spite themselves. Have you ever read a short story by um Edgar Allan Poe called The Imp of the Perverse? You know I haven't. It's a very, very short little story and it's it's basically this idea of this person talking about how you end up being overwhelmed by strange self-destructive impulses at certain points. And the more you think about them, the worse they become and the more overpowering. So like, for example, when you're, you're looking over a great height and you, you suddenly imagine what it would be like if you were to, to, to fall from that height. And then you imagine what it would be like if you jumped from that height and so on. And the idea becomes darkly attractive to you even though you you have a sense of self-preservation it's like you just can't stop thinking about what it would be like to throw yourself from that height and and of course in the story the idea was is that this person had created a murder and was able to get away with it until one day he came up with the thought of oh i I got away with that scot-free i'm completely safe from the authorities as long as i don't confess and the rest of the story is just him turning into a gibbering, you know, having a gibbering mental breakdown uh, until he finally does confess and ends up sending himself to the hangman because he just couldn't, couldn't uh, handle the perversity. The, the idea that, that man is fundamentally an irrational creature. I think that's one of the central tenets in this book, and I think we see it demonstrated in practically every chapter where you know they describe somebody as being genial, genial and likable, and thus everybody hates them, or when Yasarian manages to bed the uh, beautiful young prostitute without having to pay her, and she gives, um, she gives him her address number so that he could call upon her again, you know, after saying, oh, I'm not going to do that, you're just going to tear it up and then go brag to your buddies about how you, you know, got laid and you didn't even have to pay for it. He's like, oh, no, I, would, I wouldn't do that. There's something really special between us. So she gives him the address, and as soon as she's gone, he immediately tears up the address and throws it away and goes and brags to his buddies about how he got laid without having to pay for it and then immediately regrets it when he realizes that this woman was that current week's love of his life. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it's not just the illogic of the individual, but the illogic of the systems that these individuals in concert build. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the the bureaucratic structures, the command structures that you run into with government and with military generally, and not just that, but... Uh, but economics pri- as well. Pri- private enterprise and, yeah. and the economics kind of concept finds its uh, uh, own little seat in this particular ride to hell in the form of the Milo Minder binder character. Uh, yeah, and he's always buying eggs for seven cents and selling them for five cents so he can turn a profit for the syndicates and everybody gets a share. Yeah, and the madness of the financial transactions and 
the complexities and facial stupidity <laughs> of the trades that are occurring is sort of an indictment of the, the commodities market or uh, securities trading or that sort of thing. Speculation where, in general, I would think. Where, where it looks on its face to be like, okay, well, conceptually this could work, but then when you hear someone talking about it, when you see reports about it, you think, well, that seems absurd. The same with the, the recent uh, economic crisis banking on people who clearly could not pay for things and then other firms buying very, very bad-looking securities uh, securities and trading those off again perhaps three or four you, times down the line these people if you think are of, buying and selling essentially unreliable debt that means less than nothing at that stage and they're all well, talking about it in these these highfalutin security terms that you've got to have rather decent experience and and knowledge uh and in certain areas clearance uh to deal with uh you know you can't just go practice securities law you've got to have some cred you've got to have uh the persuasion and the the background to persuade the uh malpractice insurance carriers to cover you for instance so uh, th these are high level economic functions in our society and and they still end up striking us as kind of weird and stupid well and it's it's not just weird and stupid but intrinsically chaotic and i think that is because they're trying to treat a chaotic system like markets as something that can be reined in in a rational fashion, uh, as if people behave rationally and within their own best interest when it comes to economics. I mean, for another real-world example, just look at every Ponzi scheme that has ever existed that has netted millions and billions of dollars from, from otherwise intelligent and reasonable people. You know, they, they get sucked in, they get greedy, they get the idea of, you know, the fast rewards, and some part of them has to think this is too good to be true, but the lure of it is just so overpowering. And the next thing you hear, these people lose $40 million, you know, uh, their, their entire fortune, that kind of thing. Uh, but you're not like an Enlightenment-era rational actor <laughs> theory moralist. That's, I'm so depressed now. <laughs> well, the neither way is, I can relate to our world. Neither is Joseph Heller, and, and neither is Catch-22. I mean, like I said, I think that the one of the deep running themes throughout the books is that that people are fundamentally irrational and really the world that they inhabit is too the people in this novel are trying to make sense of their situation and there simply is no sense to be made of some of these situations you know look at the look at the dead man in yasarian's tent for example he's not dead he never existed because he never got here exactly but because he never existed and was uh, killed on the first mission he was sent out on when he wasn't even supposed to be, you know, checked in yet. Um, they can't get rid of his belongings. <laughs> and so it becomes the psychological weight around the main character's neck. He's like, there's a dead man in my tent. And of course, he's sort of speaking metaphorically, but. Yeah, you know. no, it's that same sort of thing. And you see it over and over, which, again, we've highlighted the length of the book now a couple of times. I agree you probably could have shaved out a third of this book and kept the same impact. Um, I still enjoy it, though, because it's just it, it, it makes me laugh when people find themselves with these contradictory, contradictory descriptions and contradictory situations. I guess I haven't got to the turning point in the novel. You mentioned the bombing of the innocent Italian village. That's apparently where the novel becomes a lot darker. And I guess I'm just before that chapter. 
yeah, in my reading. Yeah, that's where it takes a real turn. About that point, all of the absurdity and the goofy fun laughs about major, 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 mm-hmm. uh, sort of evaporate. Or, or chief, chief half white oat. Chief white half oat. You know, yeah. Yeah, and uh, who is, uh, I love that multi, that whole thing. Ficky fic all day long. <laughs> I love that whole thing about him, him getting uh, his family getting chased off of every reservation because wherever they put up their tents, other people immediately strike oil and then yeah. drive them away, and then it gets to the point where people are preemptively driving them out before they even get there. Oh God, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> there, there's a lot of wonderful stuff hidden in this book. Yeah, but yeah, the, the the bombing of the the Italian village is where this thing takes kind of a real dark turn, and the the references to the the Snowden character, which previously is not a developed character at all, ends up being uh, explored in greater depth. And by depth, I mean all the way to the core of his being, as in his intestines fall to the floor of a plane. Um, it it's. It gets gory. It gets kind of harrowing. Uh, for instance, one of the characters loves to buzz encampments, tents, that sort of thing, around the base. And he promises at one point not to. Hmm. But then he said, well, there's the one thing that I never promised that I wouldn't buzz. I, I, I didn't say I wouldn't buzz the beach. <laughs> so he buzzes the beach, and he's flying very, very low over the water and over the beach. And one of the other characters jumps up in an attempt to sort of touch the plane jokingly. But he actually does jump up too far and jumps into the propellers of the plane. His body is cut to a million pieces and thrown all about the water. All the swimmers and beachgoers are subjected to him being sprayed across the landscape. And the pilot of the plane, realizing what he's done, intentionally crashes his plane into a mountain in the distance. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the uh, sort of almost jovial chaos of, of earlier in the book yeah so this is chaos where the where the reality really dark really twisted and kind of gut-wrenching uh, sort shows up so and do you think do you think that's sort of to like lull you into a false sense of security with the the decidedly low stakes and and generally humorous content earlier in the book so that when it really starts to turn into you know this isn't just Merry ridiculous absurdity. This is, you know, a hellish conflict, and you know, people are are dying tragically and and stupidly. And uh... yeah, I think that transition is more than intentional. That's like that's the point of mm-hmm. arranging the non chronological order of the book in the way that Heller did. It's a gradient from completely non serious absurdity to really 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 serious absurdity there's still the comical stuff in the end it's still goofy it's still out of touch with reality it's still illogical and there are parts of it that you can still sort of laugh at uh but i don't there's not a lot of laughing when a normally jovial kind of boyish character decides he's going to kidnap a maid an italian maid hold her in a closet rape her, and then throw her out a window and kill her. And when Yosorian confronts him, he just continues to say, I didn't do anything. She was out, uh, outside after curfew. I threw, out, you know, I threw out the window onto the street. That means she's outside after curfew. It's her fault, not mine. 
Yeah. It is absurd, and it's the same sort of thing with, well, there's a bureaucratic rule about curfew and when nationals can be outside. And so he was exploiting, holding her in the closet after he'd raped her until after curfew started and then chucking her out as an attempt to get off on that rule. And it's still goofy and weird in its own way, but it's pretty fucked up. And it's something <laughs> that you're not going to sit and go tee-hee about in the same way yeah, that you're, Major, you're no Major, Major Major's laughing. father naming a Major, Major, Major. <laughs> uh, it's just not the same level of, of gravity involved in that situation. So it certainly ratchets up at a rather harsh clip, I've got to say. And, and maybe the last fifth or so of the book is just beating your fucking head against the table as you try to finish this because it's so dark and it's so unrelenting. Hmm. Maybe I don't want to finish it now. Sounds kind of depressing. It, I mean, it ends on a hopeful note if that helps you out at all. Um, eventually, spoiler alert for a 70-year-old novel, but, hmm. uh, but our ostensibly main character, Yasarian, defects and uh, escapes to Sweden where his former roommate Orr is hiding out. Uh, oh. Yeah. But I was, I was going to say, um, I was thinking another, um, I think another interesting, interesting element in the way the novel is laid out is the differing ways that people perceive the same events and the unreliability of perception and memory as they're expressed in the uh, novel. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, you've got the, uh, the chaplain character who is just haunted by this vision he had of a naked man sitting in a tree during a funeral that he was trying to... Uh, what, what, do, what do they call it when you preside? I guess preside uh, over officiate? a funeral. Officiate, know. yeah. So he thinks that he's been tormented by this vision and he's like reading all sorts of spiritual implications because he of course is having crises with his faith and so is it is it you know an angel is it a demon you know sent to torment him that kind of thing and uh and it really all it was was Yasarian sitting naked in a tree for his own specific reasons <laughs> you know and there's like it's like throwing a pebble into a pond and these ripple effects moving outward uh you know one character's actions affect another's somewhere further down the line and, and everything even though it's essentially meaningless takes on greater meanings or lesser meanings when perceived by different characters well, that's definitely uh, a very very important point with the book is the exploration of individual perception of what are otherwise essentially seen from an objective narrative standpoint as objective events if you take an objective narrator, which we ostensibly have in this book, uh, he's kind of like third person, but sort of from the perspective limited of, of a particular character, but we dance around so much, you see the same events from so many eyes. Uh, it's this whole attempt to show that a simple occurrence, a factual occurrence, simply based on the perspective of five different people, might be so indistinguishable in interpretation from one point to the next that can you really even say there's an objective occurrence at all? All of the fact, all of the truth of this is lost in each individual person's way of fitting this into their lives and their vision of what's happening in reality, whether it's a, 
uh, an officer trying to continue to get higher in rank or trying to outdo who he sees as his competitors within the military? Is it someone who's being forced to fly missions and doesn't want to continue to fly missions and fears their commanding officers more than they do the enemy? These perspectives taint all of the ways they see different actions and events in the book. And Heller's very, very good at recoloring the same basic sorts of ideas and same general occurrences from the views of the different characters. And uh, that I found to be pretty compelling. Hmm. Would you say that the novel has like paranoid qualities to it? I mean, not just with the character of Yosarian, but just in, in the structure of the novel itself. Well, I mean, paranoid, perhaps I will say it this way. There's a dearth of trust in this book. Think of all of the characters in this book and think of how many people they trust. <laughs> they don't. There's basically no trust among any of the characters in the book, except maybe at brief intervals. And those tend to be violated almost immediately. Uh, you see, one of the most, uh, one of the healthiest, one of the most normal and natural relationships in the book that seems to be devoid of strife or struggle is Yossarian with Nurse Duckett. And eventually even that falls apart because he's a pansy-ass coward and he's deserting his country by walking around backwards with his gun on. So, <laughs> I guess I haven't gotten to that point yet. Okay, yeah. Like, at, at one point they're romantically involved. It's going very, very well. And it seems like a normal and healthy relationship. And there's this oddball relationship in the book because they're getting along like you would expect a romantic couple to get along in a book. And, of course, that eventually falls apart, too. Of course. But, but, but there's no trust. There's none of these implicit human connections uh, that you expect to find. Uh, it, it's just always miscommunication, distrust, confusion. Uh, so, yeah, paranoia lumps right in with that pretty readily, I think. It's I wonder all about how we don't function both as individuals and as uh, groups or administrative uh, sort of entities. I wonder, do you think that outside the context of the war, that the world that Joseph Keller or Joseph Heller creates, um, do you think it would be any better and less chaotic? Is is everybody's situation so hopeless and depraved and? bureaucratic and you know indifferent simply because of the conditions of the war or is this like is this like intrinsic to the world itself like if there was no war uh, granted if there was no war going on there wouldn't be a novel but if there was no war would everybody's lives be as screwed up as they are or is it just the war that's is, is the war a causal agent or is it merely an expression of of the chaotic nature of human existence. If it took war to fuck up mankind, we'd be a whole lot better off. <laughs> no, I think that humanity's dysfunction is inherent in its own existence at this stage. But do you um, think that that's the that's what Heller is saying with this novel? Or oh or, yeah, I, think, I mean, I clearly, think clearly, he's no fan of war in this. It's movie, a critique obviously. of the military, uh -huh. and I don't know that anybody 
well, there's like probably three well, McVeigh style people that like war qua war. <laughs> but the thing but I don't is, think though, most is... people like war is like I, I really love bloodbaths. I like to just <laughs> roll naked in the dismembered bodies of women and children and combat troops. Yeah, but this to me is my favorite thing ever is to bathe myself in the viscera and entrails uh, of my conquered enemies. It's really like Conan the Barbarian <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, at least in my history classes when I was in high school, we got a very one-sided view of the involvement of the United States and our allies in World War II. I mean, we're painted as the good guys, and I think that's simply because the Axis was so undeniably evil with things like, you know, Auschwitz and the Bataan Death March in the Pacific and, and that sort of thing. That's undeniable, and I don't want to lead anyone to believe that, that I'm trying to state otherwise. But it seems to me that in general, World War II is, is considered the last great war by many people, and it's sort of held up as this honorable, heroic thing, and you're not going to find a lot of heroism or honor in this book, which treats on World War II from the perspective of the good guys. That, I think, is, is pretty revolutionary. Well, I mean, one, it's closer to the actual events of it because we just left Korea, essentially, when this was published. So it's actually not that far outside the World War II period. I know that sounds weird to say because it's, it's a couple decades out, but that's not as far as we are now. Yeah, that's true. We, we have a lot, a lot more distance. different. Yeah. Um, so th there is the historical difference in perspective, uh, number one. But two, I think that actually underscores your point that it was revolutionary in a sense, uh, or at least disturbing or unusual, uh, in that that close to what is considered valorous combat to impugn it would be even worse than it would be today. Yeah, because he started writing this in 51. That's only, what, six years out? Yeah, I think it was published, what, in the early 60s? Mm -hmm. 61, 63, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, but he, but he was writing Vietnam, it. But he was writing it earlier, though. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah he wrote it over a, a significant period of time, which gives me hope for my future. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> means I don't have to have accomplished everything by the time I was 25, because if that's the Ops, case... too uh, late. Fuck. <laughs> been a few years too long for that um so yeah i mean in that sense it's it's pretty poignant to point back to the most recent almost unquestionable conflict this conflict that insinuated itself upon the american people and we had no choice but to rise morally and patriotically to our duties to protect the bulk of mankind from vile aggression yeah, it's pretty difficult to turn right around and say, eh, yeah, wait, basically we're assholes too. Because everybody is a bunch of assholes. <laughs> different, people, different kinds of assholes. Different degrees pe of assholitude. Yeah, people can be stupid and people can be evil regardless of where they're born and regardless of whose flag they're marching behind. Well, and it isn't just stupidity and, and evilness. There's, there's cruelty and indifference. I mean, indifference, there's a lot of evil yeah, in this novel that, that stems yeah. purely from, from indifference or not having sympathy for your, your fellow man who is suffering. <laughs> I mean, look at all of the places where people have the ability, 
it's conceivably within their power to help somebody who's in a terrible situation and they don't either because they're afraid of the consequences or they simply don't care or they don't like the person or they don't want to stick their neck out. They don't want to make waves. Everybody's making excuses for, for not making things better when they can. Yeah, it's Conceivably, true. Conceivably, so when it's within it, their power. The vileness in this book comes from a number of different sources in that respect, yes. And, uh, and so, yeah, to turn around and say, well, World War II and war in general, regardless of where it comes from, is rife with horror and misery and plain old absurdity. Uh, that's that's kind of difficult as a sell at that point, I would think. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know people today, I can name people that I know who would not invite that as a, a tenable proposition. So, uh, to say that on the heels of World War II, criticizing it in such a, a rather profound way uh, would be acceptable or delighted by many is uh, stretching it. So, but I do agree with you, though, that, that war as the backdrop of the novel is merely a backdrop because there, there are so many other aspects of human existence that are susceptible to the same sort of analysis, the same sort of understanding of the illogic and stupidity of the way we do things. But it's because we do it this way, and it's because the administrative structure is set up the way it is that we have to continue doing it. And yeah, maybe it doesn't make the most sense, but at the end of the day, it doesn't get me fired from my job, <laughs> and I get to continue paying my mortgage, and that's it. So here's the question, though. I mean, does Heller really offer any kind of solution? Or does he just sort of throw his hands up like an existentialist or, you know, like like Jean-Paul Sartre with the the myth of Sisyphus and say, well, you just got to imagine that Sisyphus is happy pushing that boulder for all eternity. I mean, no, are we, are we doomed? Fuck Sartre. Heller says run away. <laughs> Heller says don't even confront yourself internally and think which way should I go and how do I resolve this? No, you recognize the conflict for what it is fucking retarded and you turn around and you walk the other direction so it's and it's the war game's that, well, the moral the only part. way to win is not to play exactly hmm. and that's the you know, this was raised wow by, but uh, but arguing that coming straight off the heels of world war ii man that that is a hard sell <laughs> i mean it is but on the forums for instance uh robot bastard mike powers mentioned uh the idea that for him the novel represented this idea that for every essentially closed system, the only answer for escaping that system is simply just departing from it. That you're stuck in this loop where a system continues to keep you inside of its own internal logic. And whether it makes sense outside of that in the greater context, the logic is irrelevant within that closed system, it makes sense. And the only way is to simply break that logic, to completely duck out and abdicate from that whole system and say, nope, done, out. Hmm. But again, then you're, you're caught with a catch-22 because not everybody, I mean, everybody can't simply do that. Maybe an individual well, could, but not every individual could. I mean, granted, in terms of practicability, you've got... Not questions. even just, just in terms of practicability. I mean, it would, it, it, you wouldn't have a society if everybody 
decided at once to opt out of society, even maybe if the society be is, is maybe, corrupt. Maybe we'd be better and, off without all of this bullshit, without trains and roads. Fuck them, right? I don't know. I kind of like trains and roads. Communist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, so, it is a catch-22, though, isn't it? I mean... It, it, I mean, it, it's for uh, no small reason that that, that phrase has found its way into common parlance. Uh, the people in general, people who have never even read the book, maybe they don't even know it is a book, understand the meaning of Catch-22 as this inescapable, no-win, Kogiyashi Maru sort of system. <laughs> Kobayashi. I mean, <laughs> yes. yes. I, haven't, I haven't seen my Star Treks in many years, uh, so forgive me, Star Trek aficionados uh, they, they neither forgive nor forget <laughs> uh, no they don't they're gonna haunt me down in my fucking sleep so <laughs> trust that i will amend that section of the podcast um mm. actually i won't because i'm lazy mm. uh t.s Eliot. <laughs> i just love that part i love that whole part where people do things just because it seems like the thing to do you 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 see like Prior to even the invention of the word meme, the idea of like these sort of self-perpetuating thought forms, you know, where they, the whole Washington Irving and Irving Washington thing, or, or when the private, the guy who, who got busted down to like below private, former yeah, private HPFC or what? Yeah, Wintergreen. Yeah, um, Wintergreen, like the chaos that he induces just by ringing up, you know, a random number and saying T.S. Eliot. And, you know, he gets, gets all to the general and is like, what's going on here? Is this a new code word? Find it out, you know. And then the general figures out that it's just a nonsense. So he calls up somebody he doesn't like and deliberately tries to throw a monkey wrench in their gears by doing the same thing. Yeah, the Wintergreen character is, is pretty good because you, you're introduced to him as this kind of nonsense character. But he keeps cropping up and he's always fucking with communications. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's a really good part in terms of just human communication as a concept. Uh, the idea that the way we talk with one another can be so adulterated, so completely perverted by the merest influence. Well, and the fact that, that like, since we're seeing this from a somewhat omniscient viewpoint, people are coming to PFC Wintergreen to, to ask him, for the truth of the matter when he's the one who's created and spread the lie in the first place. So we can sit back and see him continue to do that, but other people that are sort of putting their trust in him continue to be victimized by his <laughs> just malicious pranks, for lack of a better term. I mean, I, I think that it, there really is something here to be said about like just the nature of human miscommunication, most certainly, most certainly. The fact that no one in this book seems to talk directly and clearly to one another the entire book is pretty amazing. And even you when they're being honest, people don't believe them. You know, I'm not the one you have to convince, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, and uh, I mean, you think about the whole like putting the horse chestnuts or the crab apples or whatever in your cheeks. Yeah, let me and put them back there, in my there, cheeks. There I'll tell you why. <laughs> then. Right. There, there's a whole series of exchanges where it's like, I can't understand what you're saying because you get that shit in your mouth. Or, yeah. Or like you're, and, you're yelling, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Trying to be heard over the sounds of the engines. And of course, they can't hear you because of the sounds of the engines. 
Right. And mm. one person is miserable and hysterical and in tears, and the other person is giddy and laughing and doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. And they're inches apart. <laughs> and there's no way for them to talk to one another in any comprehensible manner. Mm. And, of course, That's... it's the same situation, too. It's the same flak exploding around both of them. Right, right. No, the circumstances are identical. I've had relationships that function on that level. Um, <laughs> the, the same flak is exploding around both of us, and, uh, and one of us is giddy and the other of us is miserable, and I'll leave that up to the audience to decide. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's true, because human interaction does find its way down those awful, fogged, just imperceptible paths. And it's no good for anybody who's involved in it, but it happens all the time because that's the model of human existence, imperfection. Mm -hmm. So, yay, Catch-22. It was <laughs> my favorite novel ever for a long time. And then I read House of God, and that took uh, this book's place. So hmm. as, as an aside... For anybody who liked this book, go find Samuel Shem's House of God, because I think you'll like that even better. I'll have to check it out at some point. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to look into it. But I'll say this, um, definitely, definitely this was a lot more of an enjoyable experience than all of the trouble that we had trying to wade through Foucault's Pendulum. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know what, this book whatever level of complexity and literary difficulty it poses, it was a far more enjoyable read all the way through, even with its darker side toward the end than Foucault's Pendulum ever was. Hmm. So I'm, I'm glad that we've met on better terms. Do <laughs> we have anything, any final thoughts, anything to, to say about Catch-22? I think we've done a fairly thorough examination within the time I mean, frame and I, format. Yeah, I mean, given the format and the fact that, uh, you know, it's like 7 p.m. on a work day and I'm barely coherent most days uh, as a result of that. Yeah, uh, and I'm not going to yeah. write your English paper, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, you know, you want to know more about the book, you you like the ideas behind the book, buy the fucking book, read it. It's real easy. It's like six bucks used online. You got a library in your town. I know you do. I was going to buy it for Kindle and it was like 15 bucks for Kindle. I'm like, man. What? Yeah, yeah, that was kind of bull honky. I ended up taking it out from the library like twice. Yes, I did the same thing. I got it from the library. I renewed it once. I actually just had to have my girlfriend drop it off on her way back home uh, today. Uh, it was finally due. Mm -hmm. uh, Both times I took great pleasure in knowing that I was denying a poor child the ability to, uh, to uh, participate in their sixth grade English class. It's nice to cock block elementary school children. <laughs> yeah. I, I really specifically I get great pleasure ones. from that. That, that, yeah. that makes yeah, I mean, that I, makes the Schadenfreude all the sweeter. I live on the east side of downtown Columbus. That's the poor part. I'm depriving all these poor kids of all that shit. <laughs> it's great. I love it, and they'll grow up uneducated and become my criminal defense clients. <laughs> uh, that's a statistical point and not a legal one. So. Uh, no ethics charges, thank you. <laughs> I think this this book has turned us into nihilists. Yes, yes, the, the darkness of the human condition has infested my soul. And luckily my beer, which is a little darker than the <laughs> usual Pilsner that I've been having lately. <laughs> okay, let's wrap this up. 
yeah, I think we're done. Catch-22, Joseph Heller. It's a novel about the absurdity of the human condition, specifically in the context of war, but really it could be applied to anything. It's crazy, it's wacky, it's fun, it's laugh-out-loud great, and at times it also takes your insides and throws them to the floor of a plane and tells you that you are basically walking garbage. (laughs) So if you like that sort of abuse, go for it. I think it's a great book. All right. Hey, look, I have convictions. I have ethics. I have a sense of moral trajectory. But these things are irrelevant in the face of creditors. So, yeah, actually, I'm I'm recording it, so I'll throw this on as the stinger, maybe. I don't know. Um, Hey, hey, this is a fast karate addendum podcast, and you don't know how that goes. One side is all it takes.